Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of the Disciple Types podcast. My name is Dave and this is my brother Andrew. Hey everybody. This week we're discussing the Apostle Matthew, who you call the manager. Is that correct? That's right. We're talking about Matthew the manager. And this is actually an interesting one for you, Dave, because as a John, you are the exact opposite of Matthew. Mm. So if you remember, your aspects are revelation supported by experience, but Matthew's aspects are tradition supported by reason. Huh. So it'll be interesting, certainly for me, to contrast Matthew with myself and with John. So how do you see these aspects playing out in Matthew's story? Well, Matthew is one of those disciples that pretty much everyone knows. If you ask someone to list the disciples, they'll probably start with Matthew because the first gospel in the New Testament is named after him. And then they might incorrectly list the other gospels and say Mark and Luke, which is a very common mistake. Mm -hmm. Those guys were not actually part of the 12, but we will be talking about them in future episodes in case you were wondering. Uh, But basically, Matthew is widely known for having written the first gospel, which bridges the Old and New Testaments. And there's a good reason for that. Uh, But he's also known for being a reformed tax collector. Uh Uh-huh, right. Matthew the tax collector, also called a publican? That's right. So you mentioned that there's a good reason why Matthew was the one to bridge the Old and New Testaments. Why is that? Great question. So the Gospel of Matthew was written to the Jews as a way of using their own scriptures, laws, and prophecies to prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for. In essence, Matthew is saying that the sum total of the history, story, nation, and, and really the people of Israel is found in the person and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that was a huge task given that Jesus was crucified for suggesting that exact thing. But the fact that Matthew viewed that as an important undertaking really demonstrates his focus and his reliance on tradition as his primary aspect. Yeah, and a courageous assertion of tradition at that. How did Matthew use tradition in his gospel? Where do we see that? Well, the first thing we notice is that the very beginning of Matthew, the very start of the New Testament, is a recitation of the genealogy of Christ, starting with Abraham the father of the Israelites, and basically going through the entire history of Israel through King David to show that Jesus is the son of David, the heir to the throne of Israel, and the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham way back when. Hmm. So this encompasses law, history, it encompasses family, the, the entire nation, and those are all powerful instruments that transmit tradition from generation to generation. You really could not be more steeped in tradition. Wow. Yeah, it's striking when you think about it like that. But it's not just the start of Matthew's gospel. It's actually a theme that runs through the whole thing. Matthew references the Old Testament roughly 68 times. And of those times, he demonstrates that prophecy had been fulfilled at least 10 times. Some people count more, but either way, that's far more than any of the other Gospels. Uh, so, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 is quoted, and it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then the quote from Isaiah is, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Another example, 
Matthew 2.15 references Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son, to describe how Joseph, Mary, and Jesus fleeing to Egypt to escape Herod was a fulfillment of that prophecy. Hmm. And then the very, the very next verse, talking about Herod's wrath on the children of Bethlehem, cites Jeremiah 31.15. A voice is heard in, in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's a, I mean, that's just a striking, mm-hmm. sorrowful passage and just such a use of that rich tradition that the Israelites would really connect with. Mm-hmm. And then a little later in Matthew's gospel, when Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, they have this epic battle of reciting scripture, almost like, like the rap battle from Hamilton. And Jesus <laughs> overcomes every temptation by relying on something that has been written in the scriptures, which really shows the power of tradition being passed down through the generations. And it goes on and on in Matthew's gospel with more and more references from the Old Testament. We could really do a whole episode just on these references, but but maybe we'll save that for another time. Um, but here's a few other ones. Uh, Isaiah 53, 4, he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Zechariah 9, 9. For when Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, it's referenced in Zechariah. Uh, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, which is Jesus. And I love that passage. But I think you get the picture. That, that's enough references for now. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to overwhelm our listeners, but it is remarkable. What was Matthew hoping to accomplish by using all of these references? Well, Matthew wanted to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus was not starting some new religion, but fulfilling the Jewish religion. So that's why he has Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. He's saying that righteousness still matters. Obedience is still necessary for stability and for sustaining God's people. Right. Matthew's not trying to burn the whole system down. He wants to shore it up. He, wa- he wants to shore up its foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, hence that reference to Jesus being the cornerstone. He's basically saying, hey, that stone you threw away, you need it, and this is why. And that's really what tradition is all about, preserving what came before, because it's there for a reason, but also trying to understand that reason instead of just blindly accepting what came before. Yeah, it reminds me of G.K. Chesterton's fence, which is this idea that you may want to tear down an old fence in your backyard, and it may make sense to do that, but you better understand why it was put up in the first place before you tear it down, because maybe there is a good reason for it that you're not seeing, like wolves that the fence is protecting you from, that you'll let in if you tear it down. Yes, yes, I love Chesterton's fence, and that's exactly right. And that's where Matthew's secondary aspect comes into play, which is, as we mentioned, reason. He uses his reason to understand and think critically about the traditions he has learned. He doesn't just accept them blindly. He applies them to the present reality. And that extra perspective gives the tradition even more power. Hmm. So I want to talk about Matthew's life before being called by Jesus, because he starts out as a tax collector, and he's actually pretty despised by the Jewish people for that. Yes, and that's an excellent point. He was, he was a publican which meant he was basically a lackey of the Roman authorities and a traitor to Israel. Mm -hmm. So it's a fair question. How could someone so steeped in Jewish tradition go against his people like that? Right. And the answer is that the aspect of tradition 
can get a bit out of control when it's out of balance in your personality, just like all the aspects can. And so what I mean by that is tradition is foremost about stability. And many things can be traditions, not just laws or the traditions we think of, like what we always do for the holidays or something like that. Mm-hmm. Tradition includes anything passed down from the past. So money is a tradition that we don't really yeah. think about, but it's a very important tradition. Language is a tradition. Institutions are traditions. So for Matthew, it seems that early in his life, money was the focus of his tradition because really nothing brings stability and protection like money, right? Right. Uh, And Matthew was a smart guy. As a tax collector, he would actually bid for the special right granted by the Romans to collect taxes for a specific region. And if he bid lower than the actual taxes he was collecting, Matthew actually got to keep the extra money. Which, right. which the Jews understandably viewed as a huge betrayal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's important to keep in mind that Matthew wasn't doing anything illegal. He was following the letter of the Roman law. And he was being legalistic about it and getting rich off of tax, tax loopholes, but it was legal. But he probably justified it to himself by saying, well, if I don't take advantage, then somebody else will and I'll be left behind. So why shouldn't I? So presumably right. Matthew was, he was a law-abiding rich dude and a very <laughs> shrewd money manager. Yeah, so that's why you call him the manager. That's right, Matthew the manager. Uh, managers use their focus on tradition and structure, uh, and they supplement it with their reason to know exactly what needs to be done to make organizations run efficiently and manage projects effectively. Uh, they're very good at business, and they're often very high achievers. If they're outgoing, they often rise up in the ranks, getting promotions, and valuing the money and prestige that goes along with that. So at their best, they're extremely valuable and strong contributors. They're the kind of person you'd really want to hire for a job. Mm-hmm. They're super responsible, meticulous, detail-oriented. But when that thirst for stability and hunger for tradition gets too strong, that's when they can sort of come across as kind of greedy money grubbers like Matthew was. Yeah. But Matthew did change when he met Jesus. And how did that come about? Jesus called Matthew And then Matthew invites him over for dinner at his house, and he invites all of his tax collector buddies. Uh, It's presumably this lavish affair showing off his wealth and opulence. But then here come the Pharisees, and they're criticizing Jesus for hanging out with sinners. Hmm. And Jesus says to them that great line that he came to save sinners, not to save the righteous. And Jesus said this publicly. So that's both a huge humiliation for Matthew Hmm. and a huge relief. It's a humiliation because Jesus just called him a sinner in front of everybody. Mm -hmm. But it's a huge relief because really Matthew has been carrying this shame around with him for a long time. It's not like he didn't know that people thought this about him. Right. And as someone who loves tradition, like we discussed in our episode on Nathaniel, the opinion of society matters a lot to Matthew. So the fact that Jesus would acknowledge that shame and still accept Matthew— I think that was the real point of transformation. Yeah, wow. And quite a transformation, too. I mean, he goes from Jewish social pariah to literally writing the book of good news to the Jewish people. Yes, it's amazing. And the real centerpiece that sets that book apart from the other Gospels is the Sermon on the Mount, which has this real strong focus on morality and righteousness. But if you read it, Jesus turns all of that on its head from what you would normally expect. 
he says he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. But he also says that if you are angry with your brother, you are guilty of murdering him. Yeah. Basically saying that there is no way any of us can keep the law mm-hmm. and that we all need mercy. But law is the ultimate solid expression of tradition. So Matthew, by focusing on this Sermon on the Mount, is exploring what it really means to be righteous in God's eyes. And he's wrestling with that. You can see him wrestling with the seeming contradictions between justice and mercy. Yeah, He's learning to be obedient to the ways of God, not the traditions of man. And how does that play out? Like, what does, what does that obedience look like for him? Well, we don't really know too much about Matthew beyond his gospel and some brief mentions. But we do know, uh, for example, that Judas Iscariot mm-hmm. was the one who was put in charge of the money that the disciples had. Right. So we can infer from that that Matthew not being in charge means that he consciously decided to distance himself Mm. from focusing too much on money Mm. because it was apparently a temptation for him. And that was Matthew's sacrifice, giving up management of all that money he had acquired. And we don't really know what happened to it, but it's possible that he was partially uh, contributing and funding Jesus's ministry in addition to some other sources. Wow, so he just gave it all up? Well, we don't know for sure, but we get a pretty good clue in Matthew chapter 6, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think this is Matthew's constant anthem and the real centerpiece uh, because of its emphasis on storing your treasures in heaven and relying on God to provide for you and giving to the poor. And probably most interesting from this passage is this is the passage where we get the primary source for the Lord's Prayer. Right which is basically a tradition in and of itself. Yep, It's recited in countless church services, masses, and around dinner tables, and has been for centuries. And the interesting fact, as Christianity has spread around the world, the Lord's Prayer is really one of the first texts that is translated into each new language. So that really shows how much of a tradition that it actually ends up molding and influencing the development of new language. Mm. And it's just, it's just fascinating to me. Yeah. But anyway, we're we're just about out of time. So I think I'll read some of chapter six to close us out because it's just so good. And it's really the kind of comfort that manager types can really benefit from. So hopefully we have some Matthews listening to this episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, But everyone can really enjoy this, this beautiful passage. So here goes. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, 
your Father will not forgive your sins. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Thanks for listening. And as always, we'd be grateful if you'd like and subscribe. Find us on Instagram at DiscipleTypes4in1. That's with the number four and the number one.